3: And welcome to The Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who is in, I was going to say lockdown Birmingham, but I'm not so locked down anymore. We are actually opening up here in the United Kingdom. But Tristan, how are things with you? Are things still locked down in Denver, Colorado?
0: Things are looking like it's going to lock down soon again. Everything's pretty much open right now. Um, you can go to a bar and get a drink, but you have to have a reservation. The gyms are open at a, bit at like a limited capacity. But one thing that I don't think is going to shut down this far are the mountains. So uh, there's always still an outlet. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and um, very obviously, um, the great state of Colorado is famous for its legalization of, of marijuana, of weed. If things lock down again, where are they going to get their weed from?
0: <laughs> well, I'm not too familiar with the weed industry, but considering that it was still so available out here for so long, even before legalization, I, uh, it's one of those products I think are never going to go away. Um, it's funny you mentioned that though, because I've talked to a lot of people out here actually who said they didn't actually know weed was illegal when they legalized it. It was just such a common part of the culture, Colorado culture, that people just always thought it was around and legal.
3: That's maybe an interesting point for us to to jump in. For people that don't know, you work for The Federalist, and The Federalist is a right-of-center kind of publication within uh, the United States, and it takes its name, I presume, from The Federalist papers.
1: Today, we have Google going after The Federalist. The Federalist was one of
4: those few news publications with Molly Hemingway and Sean Davis and Margot Cleveland who were
1: involved in exposing the whole Trump-Russia collusion hoax. The Federalist covered the whole journey.
0: (laughs) What, are they afraid of The Federalist over at NBC? The peacock is afraid. This was
1: really about trying to get the Federalists
0: deplatformed, demonetized, and
1: shut down. The way that NBC reported this initially. They said that this was because of content on our site, namely an article that we ran that was critical of NBC. There's no question that NBC News did target us and asked Google to take part in this campaign against us. We saw Google at the behest of a foreign advocacy group threaten to quote, demonetize the federal. Government. What Google did to the federalists,
4: I think this is a turning point today. What you did this weekend legitimately changed the direction of a story. And before you yeah. got involved, all these presidential candidates were calling for an impeachment
1: of Justice Kavanaugh.
3: Chris Bedford, I think you're doing something very valuable here. Free speech
4: has
0: to be defended.
1: And if you read the Federalist story, which most of you won't, because you don't want to, but
0: you'd learn something. So uh, we started about uh, six years ago. Um, so we're still a relatively new media company. We kind of branded ourselves as kind of the conservative Atlantic. We co- we try to cover issues that um, we think just aren't covered in DC, aren't covered in the wider uh, media atmosphere and kind of insert what we think ought to be reported.
3: You grew up in Ohio. Is that really been, would you say, formation of your political views? Uh, which kind of divides us as opposed to unites us, we have the flyover states and then we have middle America. You represent middle America. So hence your politics are right of center. Is that a glib way of saying that's the reason why you write for the Federalist or is there a little bit more to it than that?
0: Well, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think I I developed my conservative ideals from Largely, my upbringing just kind of being very observant of the people who would come around Ohio. You know, Ohio, uh, so goes Ohio, so goes the nation. Um, no president has ever won uh, the presidential election without capturing Ohio since 1960. So mm-hmm. uh, I grew up in Columbus, which is where a lot of swing voters live, too. And um, I was really energized by just all the, the people coming into town and I would go to the rallies. My parents weren't political at all. So I would just kind of became politically active on my own. I was <laughs> I was a really weird, like 14 year old kid obsessed with politics. My friends would watch ESPN in the mornings. I would watch CNN. <laughs> so I, I went to Obama's uh, kickoff rally in 2012. And then I went to some uh, Republican events. And I just kind of naturally made up my own mind, um, just based on what people were speaking, um, what people were saying, and, and that's how they influenced me. And one thing that really um, energized me to get into politics was, I was really concerned at the time about the national debt. And that was a big sticking point in the 2012 elections. And so I started working for the Romney campaign. And, and from there, I think just my sphere of influence uh, had me just casually drift more and more uh, right of center.
3: So, If you are concerned about the debt, philosophically, where are you with the bailout of the American economy, which the government has done in its first kind of stimulus package? Do you kind of go, oh my gosh, this is the wrong thing to do? Or is this a case of needs must to get America through the pandemic?
0: Uh, I assume you're referring to the latest round of stimulus that's going through right now.
3: Well, let's deal with the one which did get passed. I know we have people like Rand Paul, Etc. cetera, who's saying, you know, too much, too far. But where are you, where are you with the first lot and then let's deal with the second lot?
0: Before, i probably say no more spending, no more debt, we can't handle it. But going through, just seeing the economic devastation already from this pandemic, I, I, I have to be in the kind of the, the more center right camp of where this is a time where if we're going to spend a lot of money, we have to do it now. Uh, This is the time to borrow, we can borrow cheap. And we have to get through this terrible public health emergency um, because really we're dealing with a once in a generation pathogen. And I think that we're facing such a crisis right now that really warrants the spending that we're doing right now. Um, And so I think the first few rounds of stimulus were necessary. I have my own issues with some of the provisions that were included in, in the CARES package that was the last one that went through is the biggest one. I thought they blew up unemployment benefits too much. And I thought things were just unnecessary. Now we're talking about the latest stimulus bill, and I think, I think there's quite a few more sticking points to it that are problematic. Democrats want to spend $3 trillion. Republicans want to spend one. I, I tend to think that the Democratic bill includes a lot of items that really have nothing to do with, with the pandemic. I think it's necessary right now to be spending, borrowing and spending, but I think moving forward, we have to have serious discussions about reining in some of these programs that we've created.
3: So is it a case of Middle America was, go- was potentially going to be devastated by this pandemic? So hence, you needed the spending, America needs the spending to to keep Middle America and middle-class Americans liquid?
0: Um, I think the lockdowns, to a large degree, were really unnecessary after the first two weeks. I think it all really stems back to the lockdowns, because the lockdowns have created far more devastation, far more economic devastation, far more public health devastation than we're really seeing with the virus itself. At the time, I think they were necessary just because we didn't know much about this virus. And I think as we learn more now and we have more therapeutics coming out uh, these lockdowns are are really becoming more problematic than the virus itself we're making the cure worse than the virus itself
3: but you 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 just preempted exactly what I was going to say so that you, you know the cure, the cure is, is worse than the, the than the actual illness but if we look at um, America as a comparison to other countries around the world, even the United Kingdom and In terms of the governmental response and actually what it's done to the economy, in Britain, we have guaranteed 80% of people's wages up until two and a half thousand pounds a month. And the, the government has a scheme to actually to furlough employees so that automatically businesses don't necessarily go bump. America has been bad in the way that it has dealt with this pandemic. And I'm not even dealing with specifically with the lockdowns, which I think you quite generously said, look, at the start, nobody knew what was going to happen. But you, you surely must be able to, to criticise and to realise that the American response, which was to give adults a sum of money, which I'm not necessarily saying was bad, but there was another way of do, doing this as well. So you could have actually had a situation whereby... You have um, a lockdown, but also you put money in, in the pockets of Americans, but then also safeguarded business. It seems to me that in the land of, uh, of business, of, uh, of capitalism, that America has been somewhat cavalier with its response with looking at not just people, but with business post uh, the pandemic.
0: So I think even with the support that uh, Congress provided with the CARES Act with generous benefits and generous sums of cash doled out to middle class people, mm-hmm. these lockdowns were still so devastating. Um, we still saw more than 100,000 businesses go under just within the first month and a half of the pandemics of, of, of lockdown starting. And the the, per, the Paycheck Protection Program, it, it, just, it just didn't save those businesses that already went under. Um, so I, I really think that even, I mean, Congress can do everything in its power to, to, to mitigate the damage, and it did, but at the end of the day, these lockdowns, they're still devastating businesses, they're devastating families, and I think even worse than pro- probably the most destructive is I think we're subjecting the American public to a deep psychological trauma with these lockdowns. The mental health consequences of these lockdowns are, are just horrifying. But, but, to but Tristan,
3: are, are we basically then saying that, tens of thousands of people dying is not worth the economic fallout.
0: I I think there are are, are a lot more responsible, uh, there are a lot more responsible ways to deal with the pandemic than forcing businesses closed and and government coming in and and, and mandating certain social policies here. I, I think public safety really, at the end of the day, relies on Uh, the responsibility of the American people. And I think there are safe ways to be open and remain open because at the end of the day, you know, a coronavirus vaccine looks very likely by the end of the year. I think we have to be very realistic about how long this pandemic could still still go on for. We can't Mm -hmm. keep the country shut down forever.
3: President Trump a couple of weeks ago said that wearing a mask was uh, patriotic. Was he correct?
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think masks... Uh, I, I think masks we've especially seen this year, even though there was scepticism at the beginning of the pandemic, have been proven to be effective. And I think people should absolutely just be very wearing a mask. It's not that big a deal.
3: For us people that are on the left, why is there such debate uh, and rancour? Please explain to us about ma- mask wearing. Why was it that uh, President Trump for at least four months into the pandemic was anti-masks and he was saying that it was... Um, political correctness? I think the mask
0: debate is just a real testament to the true nature of how everything in our lives are so polarised today. The fact that the President of the United States, who's the leader of the Republican Party, was so anti-masks just propelled this extreme polarization over the mask debate. And I think that's really, I I do think that's a pretty important aspect of of our modern society, how everything's polarized to the point where people won't wear masks because they see the leader of the free world not doing it. I I think Trump should have worn a mask early on. Other world leaders are doing it. Trump eventually did it. I I do think it's just a testament to how polarized everything is now. Um, And it's unfortunate. I think there's also a libertarian debate to the mask thing. I think people feel the government can't, shouldn't have the power to make them wear a mask. I, I see where they're coming from, government power uh, forcing on these mandates of what you wear and stuff. But at the same time, we have laws over public indecency. You, you can't go and, and, and be naked in public spaces or you can be subject to 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 some type of government sanction or punishment. So I I, I tend to disagree with the libertarian argument, but that argument is one that exists and is one that many people abide by.
3: Why do you think American politics has become so divided, so filled with rancor, at least since um, the 1980s onwards? What is the genus of the name-calling, the mutual distrust that right and left seem to have for each other in America? Because historically, from a European perspective, American politics was incredibly consensual. You know, you look at somebody like Nixon, if you take out Watergate in in many ways, you could actually see his record as being quite progressive now. Um, Eisenhower was hardly a Republican in the modern termination of of the word. So American Mm. politics was very consensual up until the 80s. What happened?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a question I dwell on quite a bit, actually. Uh, I don't think anyone really knows the true answer of why our politics is is so divisive as it is now. I, I can cite reasons why it's getting worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the just the binary choice that people voters have been given through a two-party system has some blame to it. I think voters are forced into making a binary choice where someone who supports one candidate is automatically presumed to support everything that candidate supports. The fact that I voted, that I voted for Donald Trump and, and plan to vote for Donald Trump again in November, people automatically assume I, I abide by everything this administration has done. Um, that's just not the case. But I think that's part of what drives our, our polarization is just those binary, that the false binary that is attributed to, 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 to people in the two-party system. I think it's getting worse, really, because I think the, the media plays a big part in, in driving uh, political polarization. And I also think that just our current climate, our current political climate, uh, just keeps deteriorating as, as that binary uh, perpetuates. Um, and, 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 and I mean, the United States is facing three major crises right now. And it's affecting everybody. And it's really going to be a struggle for Trump in re-election because he's a president facing three nuclear bombs in an election year. He's facing an economy that's in the tank, a public health pandemic that's impacting everyone, and historic breakout of civil unrest over race. Our divisions are just getting deeper and deeper because our political issues are affecting everyone so much more today than they were even just a year ago. Uh,
3: Those three nuclear bombs... Um, Very obviously, Donald Trump didn't create the pathogen. Um, Mm -hmm. Donald Trump, um, even if it had had, let's say, a Canadian response to this, there still is going to be some level of recession. Donald Trump didn't inaugurate systematic racism. Donald Trump um, didn't uh, tell that police officer to put his knee on the neck of George Floyd. But... In terms of Donald Trump's response to all of those things, um, a lot of people would say that it has been severely wanting, it's been lacking, and he hasn't been the man for the crisis. Tell me why, with these three nuclear bombs, of which I think most people would say he's not dealt with well. He didn't start any of them, but he hasn't dealt with them well. Why are you going to vote for him? Why should somebody still vote for Donald Trump?
0: Well, I tend to disagree that Donald Trump hasn't handled these crises particularly well. And, and I guess I'll just start with the coronavirus for one. Yeah, Donald Trump shut off uh, travel to China pretty early on when a lot of people were still opposed to it. Joe Biden even called the move xenophobic during a campaign rally in Iowa. So right there, I think we can compare and contrast what Joe Biden would have done compared to, to Donald Trump. And, and that move to shut off travel to China was actually proven that that really curbed the spread of the virus and saved us a lot of time. I think the coronavirus is, is an area that I think Donald Trump has dealt with pretty well, actually. Uh, people often attack the, the administration for not having enough equipment in, this, in the national stockpile, um, but the national stockpile had not been replenished since the swine flu outbreak back at the beginning of the Obama administration. Um, so I, I think the blame can go all around there. I think on the coronavirus pandemic, Trump has actually done a pretty well job. He's pretty proactive very early on. He, he invoked the Defense Production Act and, and several executive orders. that. Yeah, but, was... but,
3: but he did, he did that rel- relatively late. If we look at the symbolism of, of Donald Trump, and we've touched on m- mask wearing, surely that's a really powerful symbol for the president of the United States to come out very quickly and say mask wearing is good. But then also to be honest with the American people. And it it appeared to me that his messaging has been that don't worry, this is not a big thing. You know, up until, you know, the middle of March, he was still saying it's one person up in Washington state. You know, this thing is going to kind of go away and was denying Um, how serious the pandemic was and denying how many people were going to die?
0: Well, I think at the time it was really hard to estimate the severity of how bad this pandemic would get. At the time, it was still very much under control. There were just a few cases. So I don't necessarily indict the president for some of the statements where he's trying to downplay the severity and, and try to keep the markets stable, not cause a panic over something. And, and the certain cases really didn't but, but, come a relatively I late. Tristan, I mean, you yeah, saw I certain- I
3: think though, Tristan, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm talking over you, but I'm, I'm going to forget my point otherwise. No worries, I think you, no you problem. Have, you've put your finger on it. It didn't want to worry the markets. Is Donald Trump's main concern in this pandemic the market? It's the one bit of the economy which he does have a real understanding of. It is the stock market, which is not the real economy, is it?
0: Well, no, um, but there. I mean, there's important. There's important indicators of the stock market that keeps the economy healthy and stable. If the stock market crashes, the economy is going to go with it. Um, and, and I think it was really important early on not, not to cause a panic over something that we, we just didn't know at the time how bad it was going to be
3: Okay, alright uh, so that's uh, nuclear bomb number one uh, let's right. deal with nuclear bomb number two let's look at um, you know, those pro- these unprecedented protests for racial justice
2: Breaking now at 11, One Nation United in anger. Demanding justice and forcing change following the arrest of an officer and the death of an unarmed black man whose last words are now the country's rally cry. I can't
3: breathe! I can't breathe!
2: Now, despite a curfew in place in the Twin Cities and a plea for peace here at home, those protests are now escalating in Brooklyn. That's where police appear to be locked in a standoff with some protesters at the 88th Precinct. We're told Mayor de Blasio, working to deescalate this situation
1: as we speak, well, Natalie, we're here outside of the Barclay Centre where those peaceful protests in the last few hours have certainly erupted all across the city. Behind us here, the protesters have just left this area, but you can see the police barricades that are up and the officers that are there. And protesters tonight certainly had a message that they wanted to get across.
3: From the outside in, his response, at its most generous, seems to be utterly tone deaf, and he seems to be invoking the right-wing talking points of 1968 as opposed to 2020. America is an extremely different place than it was back then. And, you know, just looking at the protesters, it's a rainbow coalition of America. These aren't wanton displays of violence. This isn't what's circa the 1960s or Chicago being, being burnt down. That's not to say that there hasn't been some violence, but The amount of violence that there has been, or let's say wanton destruction, nowhere near uh, the amount that America suffered in the 1960s and has been somewhat massively overplayed. Um, So just to just to recap, um, these these protests are rainbow. They are young and old. They are black and white and they are brown. What has been Donald Trump's response to them? which is helping to heal the nation?
0: Well, I think Donald Trump has done what any president should do, and that's ins- ensure the American people that this administration stands by uh, a strong stance of providing real public safety to the people. I mean, look, I, I tend to disagree with, with the characterization that the protests were uh, all peaceful. I mean, we saw the no, historic... No,
3: no, I would say they were all peaceful at all.
0: Right, right, right. But you didn't. You did not say they're all peaceful. Um, the vast you said the majority
3: violence... have been. There was in, okay. in the first week, the first ten days, there were instances of looting. There was um, in there was some in New York. There was some in Los Angeles, and sporadic bits um, around. But the vast majority, the utter vast majority, were peaceful. You know, no one can deny that.
0: Right, but also no one can deny the the historic level of rioting that we've seen and that we're still seeing in cities across the country right now. I mean, last week we saw riots, and it was Austin. Uh, it was uh, in Portland, still rioting today. I mean, over the weekend there was more violence over the weekend, attacking federal buildings. Austin saw more riots. Richmond, even areas of Denver saw cases of violence. And but well, and-
3: I, I think what some of those rioters might say is that there is some some level of provocation from the police, but okay, right. Without us splitting hairs about how much rioting there has been, because I'm saying there's been some, you're saying there's more than maybe I'm alluding to, but the vast majority of these protests have actually been peaceful. No one can deny that. How is their president helping to heal America?
0: Uh, to be quite honest, I think the premise of some of these protests are, are divisive in and of themselves. And, and I want to make sure to draw, before I say this, I'll, I'll draw a clear distinction between the Black Lives Matter group and people supporting just the slogan in general. The Black Lives Matter group is an explicitly Marcus, Marxist organization that has endorsed the, the destruction of the nuclear family, which is the root problem for so many issues in the black community. The destruction of family structure is, is a serious issue. And I think the, the the root of the protests themselves are divisive um, on their own. I mean, there's people who have, who have, and it it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the two-party system. There are people in the protests who are launching a false binary, this false dichotomy where they're supporting slogans, silence is violence, and violence is oppression, and oppression is not tolerated. I think everyone roundly condemns any type of racism and and, and white supremacy, of course. I, I don't know any Republicans who, who, um, would support that. I think the
3: protests oh, are... was that uh, Midwestern uh, senator who just got deselected, um, who was <laughs> somewhat of a, a, a white nationalist? But for me, mm-hmm. and I think you've somewhat fallen into um, a trap to say that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. And as someone who's European... Um, Most Americans don't know what Marxism actually really means. They don't know what socialism means. And they mix up socialism with Marxism and with democratic socialism. I'm a proud democratic socialist. Uh, The Labour Party in Britain is a democratic socialist uh, party. And we still have the Queen as our head of state. So there is a massive difference. Just like there is a difference, and you made the point, of saying that there are uh, white nationalists and there are libertarians and then there are republicans. Whenever the status quo is, is challenged in America by the left, some people on the right, not all, throw around these words of which they don't necessarily always understand, but it means bad, it means anti-American, and then it delegitimizes the rightful anger of those people on the left because actually you, de- you delegitimize them ideologically. You say, well, they're Marxist. Black Lives Matter isn't Marxist. Colin Kaepernick is not a marxist right
0: well, but, it, it, but the organization is we can agree well, on that though I mean the mission uh, statement
3: the but but, but 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 one second at best to, to use the word organization it is it is somewhat amorphous because who leads it who, who is the leader of black lives matter it's it's not like this is um movements political movements of history of history where you have somebody says, I am the leader of this movement. So to call it Marxist, that's unfair. And, and, it, and that language has been used to delegitimize the fact that if you're an African-American male, you're two and a half times more likely to have a, le- a lethal outcome whenever you confront the police. So when I see Donald Trump's um, response, which is to beef up law and order, you could argue and say that um, when somebody's threatening the federal courthouse in Portland, which is what happened, threatening, it's not burnt down, it's still there, but you know, um, you need to do that. I understand that, right? You know, you can't have a symbol of the state to be raised to the ground or whatever. So I understand that. But then also what you do is you say, well, okay, there is a problem here We have historic amounts of people on the street, and it's not all black folks at all, right? Portland is one of the whitest cities in the United States. Portland um, didn't even allow black people to live there until 1928. You know, there, there are not historic black neighborhoods in Portland. Okay, so it behoves the president of the United States, then... He wants to beef up law and order to get people off the streets. I might have a a view about that. But I kind of understand that reflexively. But what I don't understand is why he's not actually addressing the salient point of actually what the protesters are saying.
0: Well, there's a few things I kind of want to backtrack and and, and discuss first. The the Black Lives Matter organization, there are physical heads of that organization, and they have called themselves explicitly, quote, trained Marxists. Um, So there are... the the organization itself and we can, there's of course a difference between the organization and the broader movement. Absolutely. But the organization itself is explicitly Marxist. And I do think that in some type of, Uh,
3: okay, I'm going to give you that, but so what? So what? You know, they're not running running for uh, Congress or for Senate or for dog catcher. So no, but they're trying to influence it. Let's just say that they are, and they're trying to influence and, it just so happens that the uh, explicit aim is to hold the police accountable for systemic, decades-long over-policing of black people and black neighborhoods. What's wrong with that?
0: Well, I think we can dive further into that. Look, there, uh, uh, the, we have issues in policing. I absolutely agree with you. There's a, lot of pe- there's a lot of things that people on the right and left can agree about on policing. There was actually a bill Senator Tim Scott put in the Senate. Unfortunately, it didn't make it through. The Democrats in the Senate called it tokenism.
4: We wouldn't be here if it were not, as Senator Perdue alluded to, the death of yet another African-American man, George Floyd, his murder, is why the country has given us the opportunity to lead, to lead, and my friends on the other side, just said no, not no to the legislation. They just said no. You see, this process is not broken because of the legislation. This is a broken process beyond that one piece of legislation. It's one of the reasons why communities of color, young Americans of all colors are losing faith in the institutions of authority and power In this nation, because we're playing small ball. We're playing for those in the insulated chambers. We're playing for presidential politics.
1: CBS News has obtained
3: a rough draft of the law enforcement reform proposal from Republican Senator Tim Scott. It comes a few days after Democrats revealed their own bill to address policing in America. Let's bring in CBS News White House correspondent Bench Fracy. Uh, So, Ben, this proposal does have some similarities to what Democrats are proposing. What do we know about how the White House feels about Senator Scott's plans and what reforms President Trump could support? Because that was the point that I was
1: making earlier when we were talking to Nancy Cordes. It seems as if uh, Republicans are moving forward with their
0: own plans without much input from President Trump, at least based on his Twitter feed. There's There's a lot of common ground here, but the Black Lives Matter movement has been the demands from the movement have been so divisive and so really unrealistic, which I think warrants the calls for law and order by president Trump. And I I don't really like to use the term law and order. I tend to use the word, the phrase public safety, because at the end of the day, it really is about public safety. We cannot have a society where we allow people to, to to trash minority businesses and trash minority communities in the name of of social justice.
3: uh, Public safety is such a wonderful expression to use because at the heart of this is the fact that not all members of the public have felt as safe as others you i think you put your finger on it it's public safety when, when people think of public safety generally what they think of is white middle-class american safety and their concerns and this is the reason why this black lives matters issue has blown up so big because Many white Americans for the first time have said, something is wrong here. We kind of thought this in the back of our minds, but this is explicit. The way that I interact with the police or the police interact with me isn't the same that it is for for many other Americans. So the notion of public safety isn't a blanket catch-all because if an African-American is caught in the justice system, statistically speaking he always has a worse outcome than the equivalent white person who's done the same crime and it's not me making this up there's there's legions of statistics for this why can't the president of the united states address this in a way which helps to heal the nation public safety law and order very important things and you could arguably say that they are more important for um if you're in the south side of Chicago, then they are if you are in small town uh rural mid midwest America. when is the president going to realize that he's also the consoler in chief as well as the commander in chief
0: well I think first and foremost it's it's the first job of any president to keep the public safe and I think the president has done it has ha, ha, has done is just trying to fix that <laughs> i i mean r- right now we've got We've got his historic levels of violence sweeping across the country as police are demoralized and can't even do their jobs because the animosity is so high towards them. And, and, and so I think the first job of the commander in chief is to really keep the public safe. And that includes from domestic threats, too. We, I mean, we've got to control crime in our own cities. Now, when it comes to Trump's rhetoric, I mean the, the president's also dealing with three other crises right now. But I think, again, first and foremost, when it comes to our current level of civil unrest, we, we've got to ensure the public safety. The premise of the movement right now we're seeing is coming from the left wing of the political spectrum, and the demands from the Black Lives Matter movement are are really our calls to, to to defund police. And I know people say, well, it's not necessarily defund the police; it's reform the police. Well. Ask the residents of the Minneapolis, whose city council voted to dismantle the police system. Uh, there's read list of demands from the, from the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle. Their demands were literally to abolish the police system. They, they've been very clear about that. So I think the president has to to not has to has to not concede to the premise and, and and to the demands of of the current movement. And I think because the movement itself, I think, is really divisive right now. There are common solutions to the issues that are being raised. And there are common... Okay, let,
3: let, let, let's hear them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's disparities in the criminal justice system. Let's eliminate mandatory minimums. Let's reform qualified immunity. Let's end the drug war. Let's reinstate family structure. These are all solutions that have people on both ends of the political spectrum, both, these are solutions that have support, broad support from both sides of the aisle that I think we can really come together on. I mean, these issues have been raised and heard. I
3: I, I think you raise some really good points and there has been in the last five years, there's no two ways about it, uh, a movement from the right to look at the, the prison industrial complex. I don't quite ever understand why specifically right of center Americans aren't ashamed of the fact that over two million Americans are behind bars, and it's the largest percentage of any major country in the world. Even communist China doesn't have as many people behind bars as as, as America. Because I don't inherently believe that Americans are more criminal or more evil than any other nation on the earth.
0: And, and this is where we have common ground. I think we absolutely need criminal justice reform. I mean, that, and
3: and that apparatus which really started to ramp up in the 1970s and gathered pace under Reagan. And, and so I'm not being partisan here. It was actually Clinton and his crime and order bill, which really right. then created, so it's so not being partisan about this at all. And as I said, uh, there has been moves on, on the right uh, in the last five years to really look at what is actually going on in, in American uh, jails. I think defunding, not abolishing the police, would make them more efficient. Why is it that if there is um, a homeless person on the street, that somebody with a gun tells them to move along? Why is it that if there is any level of domestic disturbance, that somebody with a gun turns up? Why is it that some police forces in America have tanks? Why? Right? Um, no one what? is saying the over-militarization of the American police force is... There for for everyone to see, and not all of society's ills can be dealt with at the, at the hands of a militarized police force. Surely, you know, you can take some of that money and put it towards social services. You can take some of that money and put it towards good social housing. You can take some of that money, if the the point that you were making before is that uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, radical Marxists, and um, they want to scrap the police. Well, I don't necessarily believe they're radical mar- Marxists, but I'm not for any organization that wants to scrap the police. You know, very obviously the police do a vital job. But, but somebody who's British, the role of the police in in our society is smaller than it is in the United States. And they don't have as many toys, military-grade weapons, as your police uh, forces do all throughout the United States. And I think that is a good thing.
0: Well, I think, I think the police in America, we have these resources, uh, that you dub militarization. I think they have the exact, the exact reason that we saw this year with just the mass outbreak of, of these, Incredible riots that did destructive damage to, to minority businesses, minority neighborhoods. Um, I mean, there, least Minneapolis, billions of dollars in damage. The report showed that it's going to take years to clean up, and it it's probably the worst outbreak of rioting since since the, in, in terms of monetary destruction since the LA riots we need those resources to ensure the public safety and ensure safety of public property. Now, when it comes to the role of police, I do think we ask a lot of police. I think police will tell you that we ask probably too much of them. And I think there are reforms there to be made. I mean, we're asking the police officers to be superheroes. We're asking them to be social workers. We're asking them to be, uh, uh, you're not saying that, you that
3: we should defund certain sections of the police budget then, I, you?
0: I do not believe in, in stripping funds away from police.
3: resources then to other state agencies. How does that sound? I think we can enhance police resources, actually,
0: to ensure You want to give that... them more money. Yes. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, look, we're asking a lot for our police officers. And I think that especially with the crime wave that we're seeing in major cities across the country right now, right it's, now is not the time it, to be defunding
3: historically, them. Historically, crime is at a, what, a 20 30-year low in the United States historically. That is not to say that crime has been eradicated. There's not to say there aren't hot spots of crime. But you you and I know the stats that historically crime is at a, a low level. Um, it, it's almost back to levels of, of the 1960s. And in part, because mm-hmm. I'm trying, you know, let, let's be fair, and in part that's probably to do with policing. It's to do with economics. It's to do with... With um, with a whole lo- with a a relatively declining birth rate of Americans that are born in America, uh, but also you know the police have got to you know you've got to say maybe policing is part of that as well. So if the crime rate is going down historically, isn't that just another argument to say that? And, and you yourself said it, that the police are, you know, we're asking them to be superheroes. You know, the police aren't social workers. That's not the role of policemen. But we're asking them to, to be that. We're asking them to move on the homeless in San Francisco, which there are too many of. Why don't we have, uh, take a little bit of that police budget and put that towards helping the homeless? And let's not have people with guns turning up to move along homeless people. You know, we, we, we could go on here. I think we are much closer in agreement with this. But I would say that you're more hung up on this notion of who is asking for the police to be defunded. There is a semantic argument. It's a bit like Black Lives Matters. Black Lives Matters doesn't mean above all others. It means as well. That's the nuance. Okay. And I think defunding the police is a big nuance also. No, no sensible person is saying get rid of the police department. And even in Minneapolis, when they what they've said is we're going to break it up and we're going to restructure it. In Northern Ireland, one of the big things which um, helped the peace process was to rename and to break up the police force there. Historic. The Royal Ulster Constabulary the head of that uh, unit was always a protestant the police officers and you could quibble with the with the percentage here but let's say it was 95% protestant etc and they overpoliced catholic areas one of the reasons why terrorism stopped in northern ireland is because one of the compacts was they said okay we're going to change the name we're going to disband the police it happened in britain for historic and symbolic reasons. There still is a police force in Northern Ireland. It's not the Wild West. The police service of Northern Ireland is there, but it doesn't have the insignia. It doesn't have the cultural weight of the Royal Ulster Constabulary. And Protestants went along with it in the end because they realized that what Catholics were saying is this is a powerful symbol of what has been keeping us um as second-class citizens for years. That's re- that's what people are saying. And I think it behoves us, really, to understand the nuance. Defunding the police isn't abolishing the police. It's a bit like the Ro- Washington Redskins and, and and renaming the team. You're not getting rid of the football team of Washington. They're still going to be there. You can still look back at the historical achievements. But you're saying that calling it the Redskins upsets people and we've moved on from that. Come on, Tristan, there is nuances, isn't there? <laughs>
0: there is nuance and I think it, there is nuance to be had i think it gets clouded by the polarization that we're seeing right now and i absolutely think but, i mean look there's nuance but isn't to be in that,
3: that you and I are talking and I actually don't believe we are that far away from each other it, substantively and the points that um and how we actually look at this
0: and a lot of issues too especially when it comes to policing but the black lives matter movement this movement we're assuming that we're seeing right now Policing is really only one part of it. I'm so glad that you brought up the issue about the Washington Redskins, because now we kind of get in the territory of what some of these other people, of what some of these other demands are and how we look at our history and how we look at our current cultural complex. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's this broad movement, I think, to declare the United States as this irredeemably racist empire that was built for the sole purpose of, of oppressing minorities, and we're seeing demands to rename statues, rename universities, rename pretty much everything to erase our, our past. And we really get carried away that's with
3: that. That's not true. You can't say name every rename everything. Come on, no, no one is. I mean, saying... just about <laughs> they're renaming. <laughs> no, no, draw, no, I mean they're rena- What's wrong with renaming the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge? What's wrong with that?
0: I'm not familiar with with that example, but there's a, we're trying to rename. There is demonization of even our founding fathers right now, who are who built our country. I, I think we just get carried away with some of their actions uh, uh, of that time, and. and it just it doesn't end anywhere. I mean, the city of New York was named after it was a family that was active in the slave trade. Uh, the Washington Redskins, is. I've actually heard an alternative argument over renaming the football team that it's actually another form of cultural erasure. So you're actually erasing the legacy of the Redskins. And, 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 and we also erase something that we can learn from. So there's broader themes to this movement that we're seeing. It's not exclusive to just police reform, which police reform there's ripe opportunity for for bipartisan solutions on that
1: on that bloody sunday 55 years ago it was a bridge too far a climb too steep for john lewis and the other peaceful marchers who were caught in a vice of police brutality but on this sunday yesterday the road was clear for john lewis Atop a horse-drawn caisson, he was carried across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, completing the journey that symbolized who he was. He embraced nonviolence, but he didn't flinch from the blows that would come either. By the time he suffered that vicious beatdown in Selma, he had already faced attacks and ridicule. But it was that bridge, the way to Montgomery to petition for voting rights, and that awful Sunday that so clearly defined the tenacity and courage that was John Lewis. A moment that shamed America, framed the life of a peaceful warrior for justice. We came here to protest an unjust system of denying blacks the right to vote. And we met people who did not want us here. They called us troublemakers. We walked to the apex of this bridge. We stopped and realized we could not turn back. And when we look ahead, we saw a sea of blue. Alabama state troopers. History reminds us that on March 7, 1965, we loved America so dearly, we were ready to die for her. His final crossing spanning the tenterhooks of time and history.
2: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: I want us to come together, right? And oh, me too. Absolutely. Edmund Pettis Bridge was the bridge in Selma where, you know, there was the walk over in the civil rights where the Alabama state troopers beat the hell out of Martin Luther King and John Lewis et al. So there is a move now that uh, John Lewis has died to rename that bridge, maybe the John Lewis bridge. And Edmund Pettus was um, a Confederate uh, uh, brigadier who was also a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I'm not making that up. He's a white terrorist. Full stop. You go Google it, Wikipedia it, that's who he was. No, No one is denying that left or right of the political spectrum. But the fact that you weren't aware of that somewhat surprises me. And, and I think it's really important that there is a cultural commons, that there is a space where people, whether you're right or left, um, are concerned about the same things and that agree on certain, certain things which, which are important, you know, and I think this is really quite simple with the renaming of bits of America. Bear in mind that as a Brit, I've always been amazed how many states in America have uh, First Nation names. And they're just, it's not recognized that they have. Ohio, that's not an Anglo-Saxon word. Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, you know, these, are, these were the names of the people that once lived there and they're gone, right, you know?
0: I mean, they can still live there.
3: Many of those people can't live there because of the genocide which happened. But let's put that to one side. Renaming the Edmund Pettis Bridge, the John Lewis Bridge, or maybe Freedom Bridge, I would struggle considering this man was actually a Ku Klux Klan Brigadier, And I'm, I say, I'm not making that up, right? I don't see why mm-hmm. that would be a problem. I don't see why it's a problem to rename the Washington Redskins, the Washington Redtails. I don't see why that's a problem. Fort Bragg, he's a Confederate general. Why is the United States Army holed up in a fort named after somebody who they fought against? That's kind of nonsensical. and And that doesn't mean that you're less American because Fort Bragg's being called Fort something else, does it? Yeah, no one's no one's saying, let's rip the stars and the stripes off the flag. Uh, let's stop celebrating the 4th of July. Let's have the Queen of England to be the head of state of the United States again. So I don't understand why that's important. But I understand, however, and I think it's somewhat of a, a straw man argument, but I do understand where it comes from. When people say, well, okay, let's get rid of, let's rename Fort Bragg. Edmund Pettus Bridge. Let's rename it, et, cetera, et cetera. let's take down these all these statues to, to Robert E. Lee. And then that's where people start to go, oh, because Robert E. Lee is seen as a the noble confederate. And then people say, but what about George Washington? He had slaves. And I think the argument is the reason why you wouldn't take down a statue to George Wa- Washington or even Thomas Jefferson, who had an even more problematic uh kind of history around race is quite simple primarily what is that person known for if we're going to go back through history and and judge everybody by our standards today we're not going to have any heroes left we aren't but george washington led the continental army against the british and even though he lost more battles than he actually won he won he, he helped found the nation and he founded the presidency through his stoicism, through his patriotism, through him want to relinqu- being able to relinquish power. He's known for those things primarily. He freed slaves in his will um, on his deathbed. He had a lot of slaves. Okay, his wife still kept them until she died, but that's another thing. He's not primarily known for slavery. Robert E. Lee is known because he was a rebel commander fighting against the army of the United States. All of those Confederate generals, whether they were good or bad, were traitors. And I think it's really interesting that um, white Americans see those people who were traitors as part of heritage, whereas... A movement like Black Lives Matter, those are seen as anti-American. And whether we're talking about the movement or specifically what they want, they want equal rights, equal rights at the hands of the state. You know, And I don't understand this when we have people who actually turn guns on the American state and then are lionized 150 odd years later, and that's seen as heritage.
0: I think the concern with renaming Confederate statues and, and renaming uh, cult, uh, stuff like that, I, I think that comes from the slippery slope that we start gliding down. and And I'm glad you said that you understand that. If, if we if we determine the criteria of what we name memorials, what we just, what, what we choose to commemorate, if we if we set the criteria to today's standards, we're not going to have memorials to anything left. And I think the the, head, the the pushback against renaming Confederate statues and taking down Confederate monuments come from the slippery slope where what are we really remembering? The, like, I mean, what is the what is the real criteria here for? Uh, I, I tend to disagree with my colleagues over renaming Confederate statues like the bridge you mentioned. I think there are i tend to i tend to think there are are warranted reasons maybe to rename uh c- confederate statues uh I, I there's a lot of conservatives who who take that view too and I, and i tend to be in that camp but what is the what at the end of the day what is the criteria for renaming statues but
3: but i just said i've just said i just said what is that person primarily known for All right and and, and, if, and if and if the question and and if the answer is rebelling against the United States, I I think we can say, well, why are we lionising uh, General Bragg who fought against the United States? George Washington isn't primarily known for holding slaves. It wasn't the only thing he did. It wasn't. It was not. Whereas Robert E. Lee, whether he was a good commander or not, is primarily and solely only known for raising troops and And commanding them for four years against the united states
0: but if i if i just may there's also a movement right now to re-educate and and this goes back to 1619 primarily 1619 project itself and the movement there's this movement to to kind of re-educate the country on and and kind of re-emphasize what these people are known for or re-characterize what these people should be known for Uh, The 1619 Project, I'm sure you're very familiar with, it's a project of the New York Times, just for your viewers, so your viewers know, it's a project of the New York Times, um, where they they chronicle the the history of slavery. Um, And what the project does is it, it really tries to rewrite American history to where every facet of every institution was built for the sole purpose of oppressing black people. So George Washington and Thomas Jefferson are no longer known as founding fathers who built the greatest civilization in human history, but instead, are founding fathers who paved the way for the worst sin in American history. So there's this movement to kind of put everything in the lens of what 21st century standards are. And I think that's really dangerous territory to be in. And, and, and it's also, frankly, in my view, incorrect. It's fake history. I mean, these, these, these founding fathers created the greatest country, again, in human history. Okay. But now this movement I, 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 is trying I, I, to make them known for their role in slavery. Do you I, see I, what I'm saying here? And there are very I, I, loud voices. There I, I, are very I loud voices. I understand what you're
3: saying, but we can be in lockstep on this. Now, number one, right, greatest country in, in history, saying this to uh, a, a proud Brit of uh, oh. Jamaican parents and whatever. So so let's I, put that one to one side, all right? Okay. All right. So we're all allowed to be a little bit nationalistic. <laughs> the our country, and I'm right? on a British
0: program. <laughs> <laughs>
3: It's an international program, but yeah, it was half British, but, but I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I listened. I haven't listened to all of the 1619 projects. I'm not going to say that I have, because that'd be a lie. I listened to the first couple and I thought that they were really quite thought provoking. When did World War Two start, Tristan? When did the US get involved or when did the no. war start? No, When did the war start?
0: I believe 1939.
3: Okay. If you're Chinese, you're going to say 1937, when the Japanese um, invaded China, mainland China. And that gets to my main point in all of this. Uh, If you're Chinese or Japanese, it's 1937. If you're British or French or German or Polish, it's 1939. If you are Russian, it's 1941. If you are American, it's December 7th, 1941. There are many ways of looking at the same event. And what I think is somewhat sad is that just because somebody has released a work, which is not upending history, but it's saying there's another way of looking at this, that reflexively, some people just say, we can't even countenance that. As I said, you know, you, you thought, that I was gonna trick trying to trick you by saying when did World War II start? But you went for the European answer. You went, Oh, okay, no. When did America but like and I have to remember that the Chinese and the Japanese were fighting for two years beforehand. Right? It's not part of my instinctive narrative. Columbus coming to the New World did usher in global trade, did usher in centuries later the United States, it could come into being, did also usher in slavery. It wasn't your fault. You didn't start it, Christian. Nobody alive here today started the international slave trade. But it, it's kind of incumbent upon us as citizens in the 21st century to say that there's more than one way of looking at history, surely. Was George Washington uh, a great man? Yeah. He will go down in... Uh, world history as being somebody who was pretty unique. I don't have a problem saying that at all. He wasn't just a slaveholder. So I'd be with you if somebody was going to, like, let's ter- rip down a, a statue of George Washington. I'd be with you, Trish, and say, no, 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 you, you need to stop that. But then also it's, be, it's incumbent on others who are right of the political spectrum to understand that there are other ways of viewing history as well. Doesn't mean that you're trashing it. But there's another way. The Trail of Tears happened. The Tulsa Massacre happened. The Tulsa Massacre is not written about in American history books. It's not. It's just not. It's not there. And it's part of American history. Does that invalidate Abraham Lincoln? No. It doesn't invalidate the founding fathers. But it's just saying, look, can we have an honest appraisal of American history? what's wrong with that?
0: Well, there's nothing wrong with being analytical about history and trying to look at it from different angles, but I think there is something wrong with perpetuating a narrative that dozens and dozens and hundreds of historians have labeled just incorrect. (laughs) And the New York Times released a statement that just blew off um, a bunch of historians who said exactly that. I, I think I think we're perpetuating a false narrative, quite frankly, that America was built for the sole purpose of, of oppressing minorities. I think that's really the narrative that's being pushed by the 1619 Project. And really, they're pushing that in classrooms across the country. Several major school districts in the United States have incorporated 1619 Project mm-hmm. in, into their curriculums. And I think it's just a false narrative. This country w- was not built And just to, just to impress, we've led world ingenuity in so many different areas. This country has done so many great things. This broad systemic racism that exists, that people claim to exist today. Look, I'm not in denial that white supremacy exists today. I'm not in denial that it existed in the past. I, I don't think that white supremacy exists on the scale it does today that this movement is alleging, where... We have to determine everything in this binary of, of do you stand with this movement or not, and if you don't, then then you're oppressive and violent. That's really what the movement that we're seeing stem from the sixteen nineteen project is perpetuating today.
3: Um, when did universal adult suffrage come to the United States?
0: I would say after the Voting rights act in in nineteen sixty
3: eight you know what? See, you do have um, a, a more encompassing view of American history. Traditionally, people would have said when women got the vote, which meant uh, white women got the vote um, after the First World War. So we all can evolve on, on, on this matter, Christian. Uh, and it has to be said as somebody of color, um, when this was pointed out to me that it was after the Voting Rights Act, which meant that um, African-Americans in, in the Deep South were not denied uh, the vote. I went, blooming hell, yeah. So we're all evolving on this. And I think for what it's worth, if I wouldn't be spending six months of my year in America if I didn't think it had a lot of things going for it. I think it is a wonderful place. But I think you, America is exceptional in many ways. And one of them is that, and i use the word fragility um, advisably, the fragility that some Americans have with any perceived criticism of American history. And, and as a person, of, as a black person, I always say the original sin of America is not slavery. It's actually what it did to the native people, to, 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 to the First Nations. That's the original sin. Slavery might be a close second, but it is actually a second. Tristan Justice, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. Tristan, um, if people want to find your work on uh, social media or on the internet, how can they find that and where can they find that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you can follow me at my my Twitter handle is uh, Justice Tristan, no space. Uh, it's uh, J-U-S-T-I-C-E-T-R-I-S-T-A-N.
3: And tell me a little bit more about uh, The Federalist. I know you mentioned right at the start, but this is your time to say how wonderful it is and exactly what are the aims of, of the organization.
0: Absolutely. So the Federalist is a conservative magazine that covers politics, culture and religion. And uh, we take a focus. We report that we report news and commentary through a conservative lens, uh, often just Inserting things that we think are missing in the mainstream media to provide a more comprehensive uh, view of the news and and media media environment today.
3: Again, uh, Tristan Justice, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. And even though we didn't quite hug, well, we can't because we've got a social distance anyway, apart from the fact that we're actually maybe about 7,000 miles away from each other, even though we didn't actually absolutely have a come-by-on moment at at the end, I, I don't think we're that far away from each other Um, ideologically, definitely when it comes to symbols and and monuments. And I'd like to thank you again for coming on to Mid-Atlantic, sir.
0: Thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed this. It was a pleasure.